And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Welcome everyone to Podcast 56, which may or may not be posting in July. In any case, it's our July podcast. Uncle Frank, what do we have tonight? Well, we've got you, Jimmy Sweets. You and your tales of the Big Easy. Jimmy has recently returned from a trip and brought back stories of New Orleans off the beaten path and on the beaten path. We also have great recordings of hollering yet another folkway of long-distance communication. Then we have a terrifying ghost story about deadly luggage. And because of all the earthquakes lately, we bring you a seismic extravaganza. Songs and other stuff with an earthquake theme scattered throughout the show, including a short documentary on the 1971 Silmar earthquake, an old quake on par with the Northridge quake, and of course, a few other things. So, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. Let's get started with a little ditty from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. Yeah, yeah, here, because I have to tell you, here we go. Rockin' body, pretty face, attitude bigger than the San Andreas. It's troubling when she's rumbling, so give a white birth. Can't help but love her, she's the salt of the earth. Now I wasn't expecting a full-fledged passion assault, yeah. And it's all her fault. When she's around, I can't help myself, but to hold on tight to her continental shelf. Felt like dancing, so I asked her Knew I was flirting with a natural disaster Park my truck on a dusty trail Start shaking like a seven on the Richter scale She's laying underneath, but she's a gift From above, yeah She's my earthquake love Yeah, 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 there was some pretty good singing Okay, here's the second verse Great smile Better butt when I see her coming, I start howling like a mutt. I'm battling with this rattling inside of my heart. Just hope her temper doesn't split us apart. Cause a hard man knows that the soft woman's touch can move mountains. Here it goes, a mountain. Yeah, okay. She's the only woman who can make my bed rock. Try to catch my breath, here comes the aftershock. Like dancing, so I asked her who I was flirting with a natural disaster. Hot my duck on the 
trail Start shaking like a seven on the Richter scale She's laying underneath but she's a gift from above Baby, she's my earthquake love I worship the ground that she walks on She's my earthquake love Ooh, but she wrecked my whole world To my foundation She's my earthquake sorts of reasons, we bring you tonight some hollerin. Our samples are from the southern United States, where the hollerin is used for distress calls, calling in the livestock, communicating at a distance, or just expressing oneself.
Well, that's a good morning horror. My name is Leonard Emanuel. I was born right here, right over there, not far from that tree in a log cabin. I've lived here all my life. I was 73 years old. I was born 1904, almost the 26th. Back then, them days, everybody hollered just about in the whole neighborhood. They'd get up in the morning, get out, feed up. One would holler, another answering back. One answer more yonder. Went to field to work, coming home from work of the evening, they'd holler back and forth to each other. If they needed some help, they'd holler for help. And if they wanted to borrow something, they'd holler back across the yard and ask so-and-so, can I get your plow tomorrow? Can I borrow so-and-so from you tomorrow? They'd answer him back. Back then, you could hear it a long ways. Sometimes I've heard... I'm hollering as far as four miles away. Well, this year is a distress holler now. When everyone needs some help, something went wrong, you need help, you get out and do something like this. Everybody come and see what's wrong. And then if you want to meet somebody somewhere, you got there first, Downside the river, maybe sometimes you'll be going down the river on a rim or taft, uh, raft of timber. And they get down to the river, the first thing up there, you'd holler, something like this. Oh, 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 oh. No, they're dancing back. Some mornings about two or three o'clock, you could hear them coming to the field to tie that water while they chews on it. You can hear one holler over yonder, coming hollering something like, Johnson County in North Carolina. And this is my third year. I've been down here at uh, Spivey's Corner, and I've been three times second runner-up in the National Hollering Contest. And I don't think I'll come back anymore. Pretty quick, I'd get help. Well, I've grown up around hollering because my grandfather was the champion, and I've grown up to just start hollering. And then one day I decided that I would yell, and so I hollered. And one of my hollers was the distress holler, which went like this. And then there's a water call, which like when I'm out in the field and I want some water, I'll yell to the house, and it goes like this. Woo-woo! Woo-woo! 
And then if I want some dogs to come to me, there's a holler which goes like this. I've got this song that I holler to, and the t it is entitled, Somebody Loves Me, and it goes like this.
As we said in our opening, we have many tales from Jimmy Sweets, and most of them are about the things you might not know to see in New Orleans. And, uh, well, without further ado, Jimmy Sweets, tell us the stories. Tell us how you went. Well, I just got back from the, the Crescent City or the Big Easy. or Is it called the Crescent City, too? That's what Sarah was saying. Whatever, <laughs> I accept it. I think, I think that that's also the Big Easy and New Orleans. I can't really say it the way the Cajun people say it, but uh, it's a, it was a delightful trip, I will tell you that. The first thing I will say is we stayed at the Hotel Provincial, and I have no affiliation with the Hotel Provincial, but it was on Char Chartres Street, the uh, C-H-R-A-R-T-R-E-S. So some derision of uh, uh, French, however you pronounce that. But that was a, uh, a good hotel, and it was in a good area to be in in the French Quarter. And I'll tell you why. It's not on Bourbon Street, and it's a little bit away, but it's, it's equidistant to two places that we will talk about in a little bit. But... It was clean and it was very nice and they and had stripper free. Straight stripper free, <laughs> yes. And shout out to the bartenders at their little bar at their little bar called the Ice House, who, you know, both of them were very talkative, very nice, and they had they were like expert Bo drink makers. Both the bartenders. Yeah, both bartenders were were expert uh, drink makers and they threw the glasses in the air and and got the rind out from the lemon and brushed it off the, on the, so on the top of the, the glass. So they real ingredients. Oh, real ingredients. I had a hurricane and a Sazerac and uh, an ice house, their, their signature drink, and uh, a few other ones. We tried one every day before we, we left for the evening and uh, they, they were really good. So I, I would recommend that as my first <laughs> off the beaten path because most people stay at the Omni or some other place that is on Bourbon Street. But this Hotel Provincial is actually very good. It's very cool. Nice. from Sunday to Friday you can then cut out the two most expensive days in your hotel trip <laughs> now you do miss some of the people but I figure 2,000 drunks are better than 10,000 drunks <laughs> yes and I was right <laughs> I can tell you right there um, we got there Sunday night and we went right away we went to uh, a ghost tour nice and yes you can, you can pick it's like a you know it's a it's a uh, you know a small <laughs> it's a small business haven for all these people. They said they had 200 tour guides, uh, uh, businesses, different, in, ones. different ones in New Just Orleans. Just on ghost tours or everything? No, 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 on everything. Okay. So, but <clears throat> so you could walk around, and since the French Quarter is so small, you, we're walking 
to where we're getting or going each day and the tours run all all throughout the whole day so you end up being at the spots that you were at with different tour guides and they tell some variation of the same, <laughs> the same story stories. depending on how flamboyant the, the gentleman wants to be or la- lady in our case or or how um how you know fanciful or you know whatnot or how much knowledge they really have yeah <laughs> and, uh, but the point is is that i heard many different people doing it and they all seem pretty good you have to get a tour license to run a tour in in new orleans yeah. you have to pass we talked to our our cemetery tour guide and he told us all about how you have to pass a test for the different sections of the city that you're going to be yeah uh you know, doing so they they keep it pretty tight, and everybody has kind of the same pattern. It's funny they must they must train them or show well, a yeah. video on on, the same on how to do it. No, but the just the way they 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 speak is very similar, I think. But anyways, take one of those because it's fun. They talk about uh, they take you to the house if anybody's an American Horror Story uh, fan. American Horror Story season three was set in New Orleans, and part of it is set in in the olden days i didn't see it so i don't know if it's a flashback or if it's actually set in the 1800s but there's a lady that that took slaves up into the attic and cut them up and, and that really happened they found that, that was a true story that's a true For story what reason? and they Just put them in the basement too yeah she would have uh. huge she would have huge parties go up and and torture them while their people were there change clothes have a full change of clothes because her her, her uh, outfit would be all bloody and then come back what kind of maniac no it's crazy and then she got word that the that they were going to raid her house so she left and fleed and, and got away and, and they found people in the attic and then Whoa. people under the floorboards yeah or you know because they don't have basements in, in New Orleans now they tell you if she ever got caught or she just vanished they have no idea what happened to her the or? kind of that deal and I don't know you know that sounds like a good story so I'd have to research it oh, but uh, man. anyway so that's clearly haunted <laughs> and, and Nicholas, yeah, if Nicholas, Nicholas Cage owned that building for a while and then uh, got it taken by the IRS because he owed money wow. that's what they and several of them said that so I'm assuming that that's correct they had the old pharmacy and the it's one of the it's it's not one of the it's the first pharmacy in the United States. Period. And period. Time. And they have a pharmacy museum there. And they said the first the guy that set it up was a uh, was a legit pharmacist, and he actually got sick because he was treating people and, and died of, oh, of uh, yellow, yellow fever. fever. Yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, then they sold his 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 uh, wife sold the business to another guy, and he was another person that wanted to take people in the attic and cut them up for what experiments, like. They, they wanted to experiment uh, to learn, but his was more knowledge based, but still torture. <laughs> so, Jeez. anyways, they have those two things, which are, you know, crazy serial killer things, and the rest of the stuff is, hey, they took us past a a, uh, a restaurant, and you can see all the way in the back, and I I don't know if it's just because you can see it, it's kind of eerie, but they say if you, you passerbys come by and they see a, a ghost, a ghostly oh, visage nice. sitting at the back table, and uh, they showed us that they showed us uh, where ghosts would be haunting for whatever that like reason a great this tour. or that. So it was fun.
when you're going to New Orleans, people tend to just stay in the French Quarter because it's self-contained and it's real fun and you hear great music and that's good. But if you just walk outside, take a $3 trolley round <laughs> or streetcar uh, ride to the Garden District, you see all these old homes and rice home to them. We went past John Goodman's home and right. Archie Manning, who's a you know Peyton Manning's father, the football player, and and they have all these homes. They all look like like the Haunted Mansion, and one of them was actually the the oh uh, the inspiration the inspiration. Oh, so wow. it's actually the least. It's a square one, and they <laughs> claim. It has the architectural features, but it's funny because all of them else look like all gables and Laura Labor, and then this is the one that's like a, a rectangle. And when was this time in the in the? Uh, well, so after the Louisiana Purchase. Oh, okay, so still like pre-Civil War stuff. Yes, 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 okay. yes. So, uh, so the, it's called the Garden District, and they have the Commander's Palace, which is a uh, a restaurant. It's it's funny because. The commander's palace is is it's all residential, and then there's one restaurant in the middle, and it's a fancy restaurant. You have to have a suit and coat to go in there, and, oh. and all that stuff. So we didn't go, but uh, it's very famous, and it's called the commander's palace. But that area is amazing, and while you're driving down or on the in the streetcar, there's all these stops, and there's all these restaurants, and ironwork everywhere. Even even the stuff that's not related they do stuff to just compliment oh yeah y- you know they came in later yeah they came in later and they have i, I just saw if we just on the side of the road on the way to there there was a uh, kind of like an ironwork bridge to nowhere with a dome on the top and you know just weird stuff that that's really cool I mean, they were telling us constantly to do this, so it's the secret's out. But, I mean, I had never heard of this before, to be honest, until I looked on the internet and they said, okay, Bourbon Street's fun, do your obligatory one night, but the real place is Frenchman Street. And that's to the uh, the east of the quarter. You just walk across the street, literally outside the quarter. Decatur Street turns into Frenchman. And you literally walk across the railroad tracks and you're on Frenchman and the four block radius is 
what Bourbon Street they claim it was back in the day. It's Bourbon Street where it's just bars, juke joints, arts being sold on the sidewalk, live bands outside and inside, and no strippers or, 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 or you know, not a whorehouse, but you know what I mean, no, no uh, strip clubs or anything like that. So it's, I wouldn't say a necessarily more family friendly, but it's certainly a more couple friendly thing. And, and it's not like you're losing out because you're hearing great music the 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 vibe is really fun it's all painted in crazy colors you know teals and purples and and some of the houses look like shacks they have them all run down and the spotted cat is one of the you know the famous place to go they have uh jazz there and uh real jazz you know like the old time jazz not everything has real jazz but they have blues we went to a funk uh you know a band that played funk with this (laughs) with this this kid on keyboards and he was doing these crazy solos and everything and Frenchman is where it's at though it's 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 amazing yeah and I've never heard of it but yeah and I you know I was talking to people who've been at my work and none of them know nothing and it's so close it's crazy that you wouldn't go there you said everything's walking distance yeah yeah such a night such a night Sweet confusion Under the moonlight Such a night mm-hmm. It's such a night Got to steal away The time seemed right Baby, you have been mine at a glance. You let me know that this was my chance. You came here with my best friend, Jim. Here I am, and I'm trying to steal you away from him. If I don't do it, somebody else will. Somebody else will If I don't do it Somebody else will If I don't do it The other thing is there's a, a nunnery on Ursuline Street and it's the Ursuline Convent and they, they don't have uh, any nuns there left uh, but it was founded in the 1800s they said they, they said that the, the Catholic Church owns it but it's not an active church. They they rent it out to keep it going for weddings. And they, oh, so and they, they have a big elaborate do, church. Do, do ca- oh, it's beautiful, and the ceiling looks like a gym floor. Was they did a gym floor in reverse, so all slats, okay. and then all painted with shadowing, so it looks like there's actually intricate uh, woodwork but coming out of beams. <laughs> no, it's all, but it's actually better. I, I mean, you see that yeah. all the time. This is more interesting to me because it's blue tones and uh, really cool. I was, was the most impressive thing, and the church is beautiful and everything. And and so they rent that out to people that are Catholic that want that want a wedding, and they have like a tent in the back that they can they can have the things just to keep up the place. That church is really neat, and they have uh, a bunch of uh, you know statues outside of the nuns that live there. There's a, a statue that they said that uh, 
that the legend goes that the the nuns brought that statue out and it's a picture it's a virgin mary and and baby jesus and the uh fire was coming and they set it out on the ledge and the the, <laughs> the wind to... turned immediately and the flames died <laughs> it down, and, they, burn down the and it did not burn down the place so it's uh there you go it's fun and it's eight dollars so you can't go wrong <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> The, the people at the museum didn't say this. They were like little Catholic old ladies that were <laughs> volunteering. But the, 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 the ghost tour lady said that uh, initially New Orleans, the French sent people and it was all men. Well, they all, the men said, well, how are we going to have a population or, you know, yeah. a colony without women? So send us some women. So they sent people that had been put in in prison and then also amputees and all kinds of stuff. But they made it to North Carolina or Alabama. I forget which one. And but, never came south. But those guys convinced them not to go because they needed some women. Oh, no. <laughs> so when did they get women? So then they wrote back and they said, we need a little bit more honorable, honorable women. And they sent them nuns. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, who knows if that's true, but that was the story that they, <laughs> that they told. So, it's a pretty sad so, Frenchman. <laughs> there's, a, there's a cross on the house, and they said, take a picture. You can see the glowing orb. They had like a description of this kind of visage. It's not a it's not a person's to Only in photos but, but or like what a, is this? Yeah, photos are filmed. least everybody thinks uh you know new orleans and like i said it's easy to stay in the french quarter it's self-contained if you venture out you can see that garden district but on the way to the gardens district there's a roundabout if you get off on that roundabout off the streetcar and just go south half a block you'll see one of the best museums i've ever been to in my life and that's the world war ii museum and that World War II museum is one of the most, like I said, super amazing. It's it's a complex, and when I say a complex, it's four huge buildings, and they're building a 
giant steel canopy in a fifth building too. Oh my gosh! They have a a uh, a uh, building that's just like the opening, you know, where you walk in and uh, you know we're going through. It's all great and beautiful pictures. And I notice all oh, the the uh, D. It goes from D Day to to the end of the war real quick. Like the, all right, well this is really cool, but I'm a little disappointed. And they're like, no, you don't understand. You have to walk across this bridge to the <laughs> across traffic above it. It's like a catwalk. You walk across, and there's a whole nother huge building as big as I don't know how many square feet, but it's thousands of square feet. The whole entire top floor is the Pacific campaign, and the whole bottom floor is the European campaign. Oh, nice. And they have every part of the war, every every battle or every, you know, and they when the island hopped, it's like every little place that they had been, they start, you know, with uh, Guadalcanal, and then they move to, they eventually go to Laipau and, and, uh, and the Philippines. All of that is recorded, and when you're there, they have these, like, living dioramas, that's all I can say, where it looks like you're in a beach with, you know, with jungle, or you're in, like, a hut made out of, uh, that they built out of bamboo, or... You're in a Quonset hut, and the Quonset hut has a, a, a piece, you know, a, a hole blown through it, and you look above, and there's a video of planes going over. And, <laughs> oh, nice. I mean... I saw that have, one picture of the snow in Germany. Yeah, and that was in the European... They, they have, you know, in the Battle of the Bulge in Bastogne, they have... It's all snow. All the guys are entrenched in, in uh, you know, in the snow. And that you're, is so you're cool. you're walking through the snow, and then they have these videos that you watch from the very beginning, and they connect to each other and i haven't seen that done as successful as this ever you walk in and it tells you the story of where you're at what you're standing in what things you're you're looking at and they leave it kind of like a cliffhanger and then they you know this this operation whatever failed and they're like oh no what's going to happen to the and you walk to the next thing and you're at the next place with the next campaign and the next video that explains everything and then you go from that to that to that to the end of the war uh, you know, and the end of, uh, uh, you know, VE Day, right, for the European front and then to the yeah, to atomic VJ. bomb to into VJ Day. And, uh, and it's amazing. Then you go to another building and it's four stories tall and there's two bombers and five fighter jets and they're all suspended from the from the uh, from the ceiling and they have catwalks that you walk on so you can be above and below the planes and see them in all their spectacularness in like they're flying but you're looking down and looking up and see you can see all of what they look like and how big they were i i we couldn't have fitted any of the fighters i'll tell you that right now <laughs> we we no. were we would have been infantrymen i found out uh, maybe, unfortunately. maybe not even that because we, we might have been uncle there was a tail gunner and that's was he because he was short and he was short yeah so uh anyways that's something that, you know, when you think of New Orleans, you do not think of no. that. I, I saw those pictures, too, that have all the home front stuff, too. Yeah, so that's in the the beginning. They have, uh, you know, all of the... Uh, they have some... Those have dioramas. They have, of course, dioramas. You go through a whole, uh, like, basically living room and a V quilt on the wall for victory. And, and they have the little stamps for rationing, all that kind of stuff. But they have... The, the first thing I always get irritated with multimedia i don't know why but they you know whether they have like tvs as posters or whatever yeah. but it actually worked very effectively on this one because they were flashing every five seconds or so a new movie poster or a poster uh 
to call people to arms or all that stuff. So you got to see multiple. And I thought, well, if you only had one, it'd be cool. It'd be the one, but you'd only see one. That's so you cool. saw all of them. And then the and other picture I saw was of the canteen and like the Hollywood section. Yeah, and that, they were setting like up a movie. They were setting up for a private event, but so we didn't get to go inside. Oh. But they have they have um, at night they have like an Andrews Sisters group sing sort of group? sing, and they have <laughs> nice. they have they have dances and stuff, and you can go and buy tickets to it and everything. They didn't have one that week because I checked because I thought that would be cool, of course. Yeah, and. Um, so you go in and it's like a whole can- like set up like the Hollywood Canteen, and uh, they have a huge movie theater and it plays or I mean a screen on the wall and it plays stuff from that era. Yeah, forties so, movies. Yeah. So, What's the four D experience thing? So the four D experience, they have a movie as well, right? And they have a sub thing too. So don't let me forget that. All right. The four D experience is a movie. It's forty eight minutes long and it starts. With there's just a radio sitting, you know, an old timey radio sitting on the stage, and it's it's uh, interrupting this this broadcast to say that Pearl Harbor has been bombed, and then it gives President uh, Day an infamy speech, and then it goes up, and all of a the sudden curtain. the curtain goes up, and then there's one giant screen, and then there's also multiple small screens that come up. So it's the the four D part of the four D part is that you're seeing props right that are 3d okay. and then screens that are showing different things multiple smaller multiple oh. views and then also props that come down like they have a they have a the nose of a plane that comes down to the center of the screen and then they show a a, a plane finishing? a plane behind <laughs> it right and you're flying and then the chairs shake when they drop oh, bombs nice. and whatever so it's bombing a pearl harbor well, no. So that the bombing of Pearl Harbor is what they start with, but it's already happened. Okay. So then they go through a little bit of it's like a, a, basically a, a, a overview of the war. But they have the thing where they're you know they have a like I don't know it looks like a thousand planes in the air and you're in the air with them like it feels like you're flying there and you can see people parachuting and all these bullets <laughs> oh, 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 and it's nice. like it's like saving Private Ryan on you know oh. but for the air and you're like oh my god. <laughs> this is crazy, you know, because you thought this is what it looked like, and this is nuts. Oh, so it feels right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to do that, and you got to see. Um, you know, so they did that. They dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Your whole thing. Oh my gosh! Crazy. Like, all kinds of, uh, all, all you know, a little bit piece of all the war, and 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 uh, y- you know, just different. Uh, yeah, just different parts of it. Like some trees come up, and they're in the you know in Guadalcanal or you know one of the That's islands. Cool. That's like that American experience. It is. It's, it's except there's it's screens. Not not as not quite not as good because no there's robots, right? <laughs> but but very much similar. It reminded nice. me of that. Yeah. Hey, so what's the submarine experience? So the submarine experience is you're a member of the the Tang, which was the most successful submarine as far as kills or sunken ships in the in the war. And it's called the last mission, so they have this big naval fight, and they. I don't like the sound of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't, because what ends up happening is you go in as a group, and they give you a card, and you're playing that whoever that person is on your card, and then you get a station, and you're you you're either the the you know the the uh, bomb loader, the the uh, uh, or the you know the navigator or whatever and you do little buttons and and stuff and they and they have a huge you surface and then above the the 
above you is a huge screen. It's the whole night sky, and you're looking at boats and everything. So oh, you can wow. you see the torpedoes fly, and then then what happened to the tank? Unfortunately, at the end of the battle, is it was a defective torpedo came circled around and, and hit shot them themselves and shot themselves. Yeah. So do you sink in the experience? You do sink in the experience. Oh my gosh, the experience is drowning. And. But the crazy thing about this, and this is the only time it's ever happened in the history of subs, is they sunk to 180 feet, and 32 men, they had these, they all, all the subs had like underwater breathing apparatuses, yeah. like tanks or whatever, and they tried to escape, five people made it. Wow. Five people made it. And From they, that depth, it's crazy. And they, they got picked up and they got tortured by the Japanese. Oh. <laughs> but they made it. All of them made it back. And they, they were... Sure, we I'm made sure, it. Oh, sure, darn it. Sure, bitter, but... And then you said there was uh, the um, aircraft carrier experience. There's a lot of experiences going on. At no, that, when you walk through the Pacific, you just the, one of the first parts of it is you're looking on the deck, like like you're looking out through the captain's whatever the quarters yeah. and and uh you just see the deck and it's a video they have a couple planes of planes flying like that. Out yeah and landing and well yeah and and then just the, the hidden gems that they have in there that when you were walking into one of the the display areas you walk across this catwalk or this set of stairs to get from one one's you know one room to the next and as you open the doors there's a a picture on the wall and it's it's done so that it looks like your point of view and you're 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 walking out kind of towards the wall you'd be if you walk you look as if you are leaving one of the higgins boats to go on to normandy (laughs) (laughs) i'd be going back to the door (laughs) we're going another way and so that's really crazy and then when you take from when you go from the pacific which is on the second floor of the second building to the first floor you take the escalator down it's a long narrow kind of a hallway with the end yeah and then you're going down and that whole thing is a picture of at the very end hitler's giving a speech and it's all of the servicemen and so you're going down like you're witnessing the speech it's crazy that's it was a, it's an eerie feeling they did a good job you're like that oh man fantastic. i'm listening to hitler's speech that is certainly a hidden gem but i guess not for long, if it's something that good and that advertised. Well, I've known people that went and didn't even know, or they're like, oh, it's a World War II music. They, they don't, what I'm here to tell you is, I think if you hear World War II Museum and you hear New Orleans, I don't think you think one of the most spectacular museums you'll ever see. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> so, well, you sound like I had a great trip, James. It was amazing. Plenty of, uh, plenty of museums, plenty of booze, <laughs> plenty, of- plenty of everything.
headquarters for the Los Angeles police. Attention, Mount Lee radio station is blocked by several landslides. Unit 2A17, we're not reading you. Change your location and rebroadcast. This is a signal alert. At Adams, south to Santa Barbara, and Crenshaw east to Figueroa, all signals are out. Use caution. Next door, the city's nerve center for all disaster operations. The emergency control center is swinging into action. 
Already on hand, Police Chief Davis, Commander Kinsling, Bill Frank, the Los Angeles Civil Defense Coordinator. Well, sounds like we got trouble everywhere. Yeah, but keep sweeping the bands. The quiet spot. That'll be the place that's hardest hit. No one knows it yet. But the quiet spot, the place hardest hit, lies at the northern end of the valley, in a suburb called Silmar, and the little city of San Fernando. The shocks magnified enormously here. Gas mains are exploding. Broken sewer lines bubbling in the streets. Ruin running through the heart of town. But quickly, volunteer rescue teams are being organized, moving out to search the ruins. On Mount Lee, high in the Hollywood Hills, Rescue trucks from the Civil Defense Training Center are starting down the mountain. Downtown, police are cordoning off the danger points. Hey, photographer, please go back. We have walked in again. Keep your men away from this west wall facing Spring Street. The wall is Attention all units. Traffic on the Golden State Freeway northbound and southbound. Roxford to a point two miles south. Roxford two miles south is dangerous due to major damage to the freeway. Both the Golden State and San Diego freeways to the north are in a state of collapse. This is where Captain Howell barely escaped with his life. And the two men in the pickup truck didn't. Fires everywhere. Olive View, a brand new $40 million hospital dedicated just six months ago. There's tremendous explosion. The whole room is just teetering. Well, when I walked out of the room, the whole wing had fallen off. And looked down five floors. Three are dead. The rest of the patients being hastily evacuated. Now helicopters are fanning out to find out what else has happened to the valley. God, look at that building that's down there. Uh, let's drop down there in that grassy area and find out what's going on. The tragedy centered here. At San Fernando Veterans Hospital, long known as the garden spot of the whole Veterans Administration system, two central buildings have collapsed, burying nearly a hundred patients and members of the staff under a crashing concrete roof. Doctors and nurses are pulling victims out of the ruins, digging barehanded at the rubble, trying to free the rest. Not far away, another crisis, Van Norman Dam, the huge reservoir in the northern hills. The concrete roadway across the tops collapsed. The earth wall behind it crumbling fast. We need some additional help on filling sandbags. 11 million tons of water. Enough to start another Johnstown flood. And 80,000 people living in the valley just below. A decision has to be made. And soon. That wind doesn't change. That dam is going to go in a matter of minutes. Uh, 
Since early morning, San Fernando's been cut off from the world. But now, communications are being restored, and the first phone call goes downtown to the Office of Emergency Services. We're just dead. No water, no sanitation, communications, nothing. We can use any kind of mutual aid you can send. We're on our knees. We're on our knees. Others are rallying. Police, rescue units, the first volunteers. San Fernando's in deep, deep trouble. All right, now look, George, this is what we're going to have to do. Uh, our generator's been knocked out, caused out. We're going to have to use this as an emergency uh, command post. So messages are going to come from the desk out here to you. What we want to do is set up an emergency command post on the mall, steal the whole mall off, so have units 24, 25, and 26 cover the mall area. Units 242526, cover the mall. Be aware of looters. Governor Reagan's arrived from Sacramento and rescue crews have just uncovered a pocket where some of the kitchen workers are trapped. San Fernando's still on its knees. No water. No water? None. No water, no gas. And downtown. What are we doing about the situation? The Corps of Engineers are already moving in, sir. We are laying temporary water and sewage lines right down the center of the street. Now, help's arriving from another source. The Civil Air Patrol. It's heard of San Fernando's plight. And rescue, air supply, and communications units from wings all over Southern California are pouring in to lend a hand till the emergency's over. Continual aftershocks are keeping everyone nervous, on edge. But if the shock had come a few hours later in the morning, when schools were full and freeways crowded, the death toll might have reached the thousands instead of 65. But more than 30 schools in Los Angeles alone will have to be demolished and replaced. The freeways rebuilt. A billion dollars worth of damage repaired. At Veterans Hospital, Rescue workers are into their 59th hour. Hey, we got a live one. The last live victim to be pulled out of the wreckage, Frank Carbonara, a 68-year-old baker on the kitchen staff, is rushed to the hospital. His anxious family brought to his side. Did you ever get up anything? I'm afraid we did last night. Did you? Yes, he's been in there for 59 hours and. He has an obsessive emphysema, and we were really worried it was dusty and dirty down there. What is it? In Chicago. Oh, there's a dead little guy. 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 Oh, there's a dead
the Norman Reservoir is down. You are now free to return to your homes. Going home, but often to things like this. Is what we expected, I think, said the barrister, and I'm glad the case is over. There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defence of John Turk, the murderer, on a plea of insanity, had been successful, for no doubt he felt that no man had ever better deserved the gallows. I'm glad too, said Johnson. He had sat in the court for ten days, watching the face of the man who had carried out one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. The barrister glanced up at his secretary. Ah, I remember, yes, he said. You want to get away for Christmas. You're going to the Alps, aren't you? I can catch the morning boat now, he said. I'm glad I've seen the last of that man's dreadful face. The description of the way the dismembered body was crammed and packed with lime into that... Don't dwell on it, my dear fellow, interrupted the other. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants them. Now go and enjoy your holiday. Johnson took his leave. At the door he turned suddenly. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you, he said. Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? It's too late to get one tonight. Of course, I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. You shall have it the moment you get home. Johnson dined at his club before going back to his rooms. He occupied the top floor in one of those old gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his own was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. In the hall he met his landlady. "'This come by a man from Mr. Wilbraham, sir,' she pointed to what was evidently the kit-bag, and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. "'And now I must pack.' His employer had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas kit-bag. It was not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap and gloves, and then on top of these he piled his woolen shirts. The dress suit came next, and then, thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused a moment. And as he did so, he heard footsteps coming softly up the stairs. No doubt they belonged to a late lodger. He went into his bedroom and packed his dress shirts as best he could. The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full. 
For the first time he noticed that it was old and dirty. He went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below, for the floor beneath was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard the soft tread of someone padding about over the bare boards. Then an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having just packed his recalcitrant white shirts, he noticed that the top of the kit bag lopped over towards him with an extraordinary resemblance to a human face. The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or was it a travel stain, looked like hair. It gave him rather a turn, for it was so outrageously like the face of John Turk, the murderer. He laughed and went into the front room where the light was stronger. That horrid case has got on my mind, he thought. I shall be glad of the change of scene. In the sitting room, however, he was not pleased to hear again that stealthy tread upon the stairs, and to realise that it was much closer than before. And this time he got up and went to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. He went back to his packing. It was by this time getting on towards midnight. It is difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water, but often so lightly that they claim no definite recognition from the consciousness. Johnson recognized that he felt nervous, yet he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of this growing uneasiness. Pure nerves, I suppose, he said aloud with a forced laugh. Mountain air will cure all that. That reminds me, my snow glasses. He was standing by the door of the bedroom, and as he passed quickly towards the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard, he saw... Out of the corner of his eye, the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position, with one hand on the banisters, and the face peering up towards the landing. The person who had been creeping about below all this time had at last come up to his own floor. What in the name of heaven did he want? After a few seconds' hesitation, Johnson found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs, he saw to his utter amazement, were empty. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him. He almost ran into the light of the front room, but hardly had he passed inside the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into his bedroom. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced leapt the boundary line and entered the state of fear, almost of acute, unreasoning fear. For some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Then he crossed the landing boldly and went straight into the other room. "'Who's there? Is that you, Mrs. Monks?' he called aloud. "'Who's there?' he called again. 
The curtain swayed very slightly, and as he saw it his heart missed a beat. Yet he dashed forward and drew them aside with a rush. A window streaming with rain was all that met his gaze. He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and, as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the kit-bag. Odd, he thought, that's not where I left it. He did not remember having moved it. He went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. And it was here, just when he most desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received day after day in the courtroom of the old Bailey came strongly to light. The dreadful face of John Turk, the murderer. The white skin, the evil eyes, and the fringe of black hair low over the forehead. This is all rubbish and nerves, he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from the chair. I shall finish my packing and go to bed. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across to the bedroom, and the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, and just over its crumpled top he saw a head and face slowly sinking down out of sight as though someone were crouching behind it to hide. And at the same moment, a sound, like a long-drawn sigh, was distinctly audible in the still air about him. At first, such a wave of terror came over him that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost a hysterical impulse to scream aloud. Who is there? he said at length. The tones came out in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost the control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward so that he could see all round and over the kit bag. Of course there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack where it had fallen over, and then he saw for the first time that round the inside... Some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded blood stain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt. At the same time, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch forward toward the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for the support of something solid and the door, being further behind him than he realised, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut to with a resounding bang. At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch, and the light in the room went out. He groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light on again, but the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on it a-swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets, so that it was some moments before he found the switch. And in those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror.
he distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers. The room was flooded again with light. There, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit bag, stood the figure of John Turk, the murderer. In a flash, Johnson realised what it all meant. The dirty and much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful, stretched condition of the bulging sides. He remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag for burial, the ghastly dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself produced as evidence. Very softly and stealthily his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, but before he could actually turn it, the very thing that he most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, that heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into words. It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and then falling in a heap upon the floor of the landing. He remained unconscious for a long time. When he woke, the wintry dawn was just beginning to peep in at the windows, and he managed to crawl into the front room and cover himself with an overcoat in the armchair, where at length he fell asleep. A great clamour woke him. He recognised Mrs Monk's voice. What? You ain't been to bed, sir? Are you ill? There's an urgent gentleman to see you, uh, someone from Mr Wilbraham's. Mr Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies, and explained that the wrong kit bag had been sent over the night before. They must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir, I'm afraid, the man continued. The one John Turk packed the dead body in. Mr. Wilbraham's awfully upset about it, sir, and uh, told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one. Beg pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you'd maybe like to know what's happened. Yes. John Turk killed himself last night with poison, immediately on getting his release, and he left a note for Mr Wilbraham saying as he'd be much obliged if they'd have him put away, same as the woman he murdered, in the old kit bag. What time did he do it? asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, sir, the warder says. Together or pulling apart 
science fair kit. Astonishing? Perhaps. But you can find it for Christmas for $17.95 in a place that's known as Radio Shack. Radios, stereos, recorders, everything in sound. Continuing news of the big news, breakthrough. California's well-beloved San Andreas Fault. In Los Angeles, NTEC. Thousands were reported to press news. Yeah. 
Well, our podcast, like the month of July, has gone too fast. But we still have one more thing. Uncle Frank, what is it? We end the show on a somber note tonight with the news that our Uncle Neil has passed away. He was born in the Thousand Oaks area and grew up on a farm in the Norwegian colony. Later, he went to college at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and then served our country in the Korean War. Afterwards, he farmed and managed real estate for the rest of his life. But to us, he was just a great uncle, very forgiving of our city nonsense and always fun to visit with. And he and my Aunt Gisela could throw some amazing parties. Thank you for the great memories, Uncle Neil. You will be missed very much. And so this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month.